0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 28, verses 24 through 35. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: this This morning, we're going to um, uh, bring our series to Acts. That we're going to bring that plane into land uh, this morning, because next week we're going to um, begin our series in Ephesians. Not only are we going to be uh, preaching through the book of Ephesians over the next three months, but also in all of our Bible classes we're going to be studying as well, and our adult Bible classes going verse by verse by verse through, uh, through Ephesians. So if you've not uh, been a part of a Bible class for a very long time, this is going to be your opportunity to kind of get plugged back in as we begin this next week with the study of, uh, of Ephesians. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, every time we see a rainbow, every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper, every time we see a baptism and hear a confession and witness a moment of repentance, we are reminded of the love that you have throughout all of history bestowed on your creation, and upon your human creatures. We are grateful for these these reminders, Father, of the grace that is extended to us each and every moment of our lives. In fact, a grace, Father, that we recognize, that we stand in each and every day of our life. We find this beautiful, and we find it wonderful, and transformational, overwhelming all the time. And our prayer this morning is that you will help us to understand your great mission on this planet and how we are a part of it. We're grateful for the book of Acts, Father, that we have studied these last several weeks, and for the themes that we've been able to draw out of it. And as we close this study this morning, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear. In this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Ever been a part of a fad? I mean, everybody knows what a fad is, right? Definition of a fad up on the screen. An intense and widely shared enthusiasm. For something, especially one that is short-lived and without basis in the object's qualities. It's a craze. And everybody knows what a fad is, right? There's just something, there's something kind of uh, intriguing about a fad. But I think everybody would agree that when it comes to fads, there is a lot of craziness attached to it. Here's the proof. Now, we have an intergenerational church. And so we're going to begin with people coming of age in the 1950s. Do you remember when people would stuff telephone booths? How many, by the way, how many of you have done this? Nobody wants to confess that they actually did this. In the 1960s, (laughs) beehive hairdos. The 1960s, when beehive hairdos ruled the earth. 1970s, uh, the decade that I came of age, leisure suits. And what would have really made this special is if I could have included a picture of those platform shoes. Now, guys, be brave. How many of you? I had one, I admit. How many of you had a leisure suit? And how many of you wore the platform shoes? I wish I had those platform shoes today. The 1980s, nothing yells the 80s like jellies. Oh, my goodness, man. I, we went through lots of these with my little girl. Uh, the, th- the, fun, the great thing about jellies is they made Crocs look cool. You know? <laughs> the 1990s, how many of you still have a lot of your income stashed in your 401K known as TY Beanie Babies? And then in the 2000s, planking. I don't want to know. I don't raise your hand. Please do not confess that you have ever done this. I heard one guy say, you know, this planking thing was weird, really kind of a weird deal. Wouldn't it be nice if they came up with a fad called thinking? Wouldn't that be a great? <laughs> do you know what all of these mercifully had in common? They were short-lived. They were short-lived. The opposite of, the, of a fad is this. Our faith our faith. Not only has it been around for 2,000 years but it continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger going on to this day even into our own age and global still. Here are some thoughts from Walter Russell Mead and Neil Reynolds they they wrote this article they didn't write it together but both of them were sharing thoughts in an article called The Globalization of God in the 21st Century they write Christianity is now on its biggest role in its 2,000 year history Many Christians, though, are only dimly aware of the faith's phenomenal advance. You could call it the greatest story never told. And if you do ever get a chance to, to, to look through some Christian publications, uh, those that are, are, are modern and, and contemporary and reporting on what's happening around the world today, you will notice that there are always, always, always these, these incredible stories of people coming to faith in places around the world where years and years ago we only had a dim hope that the gospel would ever go and be effective in places like that. But here's the thing. Jesus made a promise about the advance of his kingdom in the world. Do you remember what that was? Right before he ascended into heaven, or uh, right before he was crucified, he met his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. He asked them, you know, who do men say that I am? And they, they kind of hem and haw the kinds of things that they're hearing around the, the, the population as they interact with people in towns and villages and cities. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And in this moment of of beautifulness that, that, that Peter rarely, rarely exhibits in the Gospels, he says, you are the Christ, the Son, the living God. And Jesus says, that's correct. And then he says, speaking of that confession, on this rock I will build my church. And here's the promise. In the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Let's say that last phrase together. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That describes the advance of the kingdom of God throughout the world in just three words. No gates prevail. And I think that's why every year, at least once a year, at least part of Acts should be read, if not all of it. And I would encourage you to read all of it. But this is why every disciple of Jesus should read through the entire book of Acts at least once a year. And that is to be reminded that the church is unstoppable in every community where there are people of faith. Now again, as we we bring this series into land, what I'd like to do in the time that we have left is to give you a quick survey of the book of Acts and then to draw out four points at the end and then we'll be done this morning with our study time. You know as well as I do that Acts begins with the Lord Jesus after his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. He is with his disciples for 40 days. And when he leaves and ascends into heaven, he leaves 120 disciples on the entire planet. And he gives them these instructions in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive a power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And basically, it's a very simple three-point plan. There are three prongs to it. You start in the city of Jerusalem. After a period of time, the gospel will go out into Judea and Samaria And then after a period of time, it will go to the ends of the earth, meaning not just to every place, but to every people and to every language. Ten days later, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the next big holy day after Passover is Pentecost. And at 9 o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit comes... And lands on these disciples and it is unmistakable that something special is going on. There are these tongues of fire above the heads of the apostles. There's this gigantic sound of a violent rushing wind in the place that they are. And all of these apostles begin to speak in other languages the words of the gospel. And there are people from all over the world, both Jew and Gentiles, who are in Jerusalem for Pentecost and they are utterly amazed. And this gives Peter the opportunity to stand up and to explain what is happening. And he says to them, what all of you are seeing is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about what God would do with his creation and he would do with all of humanity. He would send his son Jesus who would come, he would do marvelous things, he would instruct the minds of the people. He would he would he would come and 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 live a life of of service and of unquestionable and unparalleled love but his own people the people that should have recognized him would crucify him but guess what would happen three days later god would resurrect jesus from the dead which was according to scripture and on that day there are three thousand people who have been thinking about the messiah and all of a sudden peter puts it in a way that it all makes sense and there are three thousand people that realize that in all of their best intentions they had actually killed the Son of God. They had killed the Messiah. And those people are cut to the heart, and they want to know, what, what should we do? What should we do? And Peter says, this is what you do. You repent, and you get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And God will put this Spirit that you're experiencing, this, His Holy Spirit of, of God in you. And on that day the church is formed with people meeting and worshiping God together every day. They're learning the word, they're sharing food, they're taking care of each other. And at the end of chapter two, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being what? Saved. Well, the opposition outside of the church does not uh, slow down very much. You know, Peter preaches again, but this time he is opposed by the temple leaders in Jerusalem. They're thrown in jail for their night. They're pulled out of jail. They're threatened. They're released the next day. And guess what they do? They go home, and they're grateful that they had an opportunity to suffer for Christ. And they tell the other disciples what had happened to them, and they pray with those disciples that there's nothing but nothing that will slow down their their desire to share this good news with everyone. They pray for more boldness to speak the gospel. And at the end of that prayer, the walls of that place where they're meeting begin to shake. And so by the time you get to Acts chapter 5, and they continue to preach boldly, the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Which means that the church is probably pretty close to 10,000, if not more than that, because of the preaching of the good news that's happening in Jerusalem. Well, that opposition that they already experienced from the temple authorities, it's not going to slow down. We have this issue with Ananias and Sapphira that, that grieved the Holy Spirit. There's also this, this internal distribution of food with the, the widows that begins to be disruptive of the church. But they find some godly men who are full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, to be able to serve as the deacons of the church in distributing all of that food. But in the middle of all of this that's going on, they have another run-in with the religious leaders while they're preaching. And this time they're all thrown in prison, but an angel lets them out. And the angel does not say to them, hey, you need to get out of here and you need to find a, a, a safe place to live and a safe place to hide for a couple of days because they're after you. What the angel says as he opens the door and lets them out is, go back to the temple and continue preaching. And so they're arrested again, and they're beaten thoroughly, and they're released with serious threats. But not before this wise old rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, who is is a part of the Sanhedrin, is going to counsel the Sanhedrin, and he says to them, I have something I want to advise you guys to think about. Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. In other words, before you make another move, you need to find out if this is a fad or it's a movement from God. And as we enter chapter 6, the word of God spreads. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Right after this, Stephen, one of those first deacons, who's, who's helping the widows out, the Hellenistic widows in the church, by distributing the food that day, is, uh, is captured. He's arrested. He preaches and says some things that just seem like blasphemy in the, in the ears of the Hebrews. He is stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And because of his, 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 his lynching and his murder, the church is scattered, but no one is staying quiet about the faith. No one is getting out of Dodge for the sake of saving their own skin. They're getting out of Dodge, but as they're going, they're preaching the word, chapter 8, verse 4, everywhere they go. The gospel has not been contained within the city of Jerusalem. It's now spreading out into Judea and Samaria. It's making its way throughout Israel. And even the greatest persecutor of the church, this fellow by the name Saul of Tarsus, is converted while he's on his way to Damascus. And guess what? As he is converted, he begins to be bold about the gospel as well, and Saul begins to help build the church that he once tried to destroy. And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria now Are enjoying a time of peace. And they're being strengthened. And living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it, what? Increased in numbers. Well, the story switches back to Peter for a moment. And the human being, Peter, who preached the first gospel message to the Hebrews back there in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, now preaches the first official sermon to a completely Gentile audience in Caesarea Maritima. Now the church is in existence, not just in Judea and Samaria, but it's moving up the coast. And now it's just not north of Jerusalem, it's way up north of Jerusalem, even getting to a place now by the name of Antioch. And here's where Saul enters the story again. He and Barnabas are in that city of of Antioch for a a period of time and they're strengthening the church. And on one day while they're fasting, the the Holy Spirit leads them to understand that God is calling Saul and Barnabas. He's going to be later known as Paul. He and Barnabas are going to be sent by God from Antioch and it's, it's not going to be an easy trip, but they're going to go even further into the world to preach the gospel. And again, it's not easy. They go from city to city to city to city. They're in Asia Minor. Most of the time, it's dangerous. But everywhere they go, because of their boldness, because of the Spirit, because of the Word, because of their own joy, because of the message, there are people who believe and who repent and who are baptized and become disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And the Gentiles proved to be more more receptive. And it creates a bit of an international church crisis for the early church, The leaders have to get together back in the mother city, Jerusalem, where it all started, to figure out what to do with the Jews and the Gentiles now being in the same church. That's never happened before. Now it's happening that they're having all of these cultures and all of these ways of of thinking about the world and the pragmatics of culture, they're now being found in the same church. And now it becomes settled that God wants all of His people in His church. And the gospel is the only way that they come in. So Paul, Saul, uh, was what his old name was. His name has been changed to Paul. Paul and Barnabas, even though they they have this this great victory in Jerusalem where they don't have to separate Jews from Gentiles in the church, but now everybody's going to be one body, they can't make up, ironically, their minds about John Mark, who had left them, probably about the time that they got to the snows in the mountains of Asia Minor, who wanted to go back to Mom, the hometown, they can't get on the same page about what to do with him. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. Paul says, no, we, need, uh, we don't need a boy, we need an hombre. We need somebody that, can, that can, can withstand the toughness of doing mission work. Well, they decide to go their separate ways. Barnabas grabs John Mark, heads back to the island of Cyprus, Paul grabs Silas, and they head off again. They go to Troas. Now they're in Philippi. Lydia becomes the first convert now that the church is in Europe. There's Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth where God tells Paul. And and you can imagine just what a, a poignant moment this is in Paul's life. I mean, he was dragged out of the city of Lystra because they thought they had stoned him to death and they left him out there on the road thinking he was dead. Everywhere they go, there are people that are opposing them, thinking that they're preaching something that's untrue and dangerous. And Paul, tells, or Paul is told by God when he's in Corinth not to be afraid. God tells Paul, please don't be afraid. I, I know this is rough. But I am going to be with you, and there is no man that is going to harm you. And the reason I'm telling you this is that you'll preach the gospel because I have many people in this city. And Paul's there for 18 months. Goes uh, uh, to Ephesus. There's a riot there. There's danger everywhere he turns. Makes it back to Antioch. Paul decides it's about time to make a third trip preaching and teaching in all the cities where he had planted churches, which eventually gets him back to Jerusalem again. But in Jerusalem, Paul is not going to find it easy as some folks want to drag Paul out of the temple to kill him because they thought that he had taken a Gentile into a place where Gentiles were not supposed to go. And the Roman soldiers, I mean, this is starting to get out of hand very, very quickly. There are gates to the city that are beginning to be closed. The Roman soldiers don't march, but they run to the rescue and bring Paul back to the barracks. And after questioning him and some, 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 uh, some uh, inquiries are made, they have to move Paul all the way up to Caesarea Maritima. And while he's there, he speaks to Felix. And later he speaks to Festus. At the same time, King Agrippa. And they want to take him back to Jerusalem. And Paul says, what in the world have I done that you would want me to turn me me over to the Jews? I am a Roman citizen. I appeal to Rome. He he, He appeals to Caesar. And to Rome he is sent. And Acts ends with these words. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all, what's that word again? Boldness, and this time though, without hindrance. A couple of final thoughts. First, the mission of the church, our church, is the re-globalization of God. The original sin in Genesis 3 was humans desiring to be godlike rather than godly. And when humans made the decision to rule their own lives, it brought catastrophic consequences into the world. It brought sin and fallenness and thorns and thistles and suffering, and it brought death. The world would become a place of curse. There are places that are beautiful. There are moments that the world is incredibly lovely. But the world is a place of thorns and thistles. And God's plan was not to kick the world to the curb, but to reglobalize himself as the original and rightful king of his creation. And our church, as well as every church that has ever been in existence, In our serving, in our speaking, our our preaching, our praying, our loving and transforming lives, remind the world that it is the world. And not in this anti-world sense, but we remind the world what it means to be God's creation and to be God's creatures. And that doesn't happen easily. It takes time and it takes patience. And it takes prayer, and it takes God's Spirit to be involved. But at the end of the process, we want every human being to recognize the very things that we recognize each and every moment of our life. Paul uh, uh, typifies this recognition of of the trueness of God's supreme value in all of the universe when he writes to Timothy in chapter 6 that we're talking about God, the blessed and only ruler the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, it is to Him be honor and might forever. Number two, not only are we a part of the mission to reglobalize the knowledge of God in the world, but the church flourishes in and grows through opposition. There is a law known as the law of inverse consequences. What it means is that the results are going to be the opposite of the expected result as you had intentionally planned or intended them to be. I'll give you an example from my own lawn. Every once in a while, you see a dandelion. And over the years, you learn to hate dandelions because they just seem to, 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 to just want to ravage all of your hard work with soil and fertilizer. And you see that dandelion, that first one of the spring, it pokes its head up and you decide that dandelion has got to go. And your first inclination is to what? Mow right over that dude. What happens when you mow over a dandelion that's gone to seed? You just spread it all over the place, and then you've got more work than ever. What actually, the, the, the direct opposition of the kingdom of the world to the church in all of the 2,000 years that the church has been around in, in its own history has done nothing but trigger even greater growth. In fact, by the time you get to the 3rd and the 4th centuries, you have writings, not by Christians, but you have those on the outside of the church that are looking in that are absolutely amazed that these people continue to serve and to love and, and to be generous and to be kind and to be gentle and to, and to speak well of others and to be long-suffering and, and to be just, just incredibly over the top when it comes to loving and serving people even in the middle of plagues. And they can't understand it, but they say there's something there. Direct opposition has never stopped the church, but it triggered even greater growth. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you stop a movement that only grows greater in opposition? How do you stop a movement that by its very nature it only gets bigger and greater and more powerful and more influential in opposition. You make it comfortable. You make it comfortable to the extent that it doesn't want to get uncomfortable ever again. Right after Paul is stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra, he tells the disciples, they're going, Paul, Goodness gracious, man, when are you going to learn that people don't want to hear what it is that you have to say? And not only do they not want to hear what you're having to say, they're not willing to just walk away. They're going to throw rocks on top of you until you're unconscious conscious, and then dead, and then they're going to drag you out of the city. They're not even going to bury you. They're going to leave you to the carrion and the wild beasts that are, are roaming the woods. And Paul says, you know what? Here's a truth you need to remember. Paul says we have to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. A third thing that we get out of the book of Acts, the gospel means that people are not supposed to go to hell. The gospel means that people are not supposed to go to hell. The gospel means what? Good news. Say it with me. The gospel means good news. Nine times in Acts, they are proclaiming good news. What does that mean? That God wants His people back. God not only wants to have them back in His own presence, but God wants to be in their hearts. He wants to be a part of their thinking. He wants to be a part of their souls. He wants to be a part of their everyday life. It means that God wants people saved. He wants, as a, a blesser and a giver and a, and a lover, He want, and, a, and somebody that serves, He wants to bless people's life. You go to Acts chapter 9, and this angel shows up to Cornelius. And he says, I know you've never seen the likes of me before, but I have a task for you if you're willing. And Cornelius, having never seen an angel, says, what do you want? And he goes, I want you to send some people down to Joppa. And at the house of a fellow by the name of Simon the Tanner, there's a fellow by the name of Peter. And I want you to send those men to get Peter and to to bring him back up to Caesarea. And Cornelius does that. And finally Peter makes his way up to Caesarea, meets Cornelius and the family, all of the friends. And he goes, why in the world am I here? And here Cornelius says, you know, the funniest thing happened a couple of days ago. An angel showed up and said, we need to go down and get you and bring you up. And the reason we need to bring you up is because he will bring you a message, the angel said, through which you and all your household will be, what? Saved. Saved. And then we'll close with this. Not only is the mission of the church about the re-globalization of God, the church flourishes in and grows through opposition. The gospel means that people are not supposed to go to hell, but to be saved and to find themselves in the perfect, overwhelming love of God, but the gospel advances through People. Isn't that the funny thing that you keep being reminded of as you read through the book of Acts? That wherever you find angels, you have the angels saying, hey, go preach, go preach, go preach, or go send for this guy, and he's going to proclaim to you, this human being is going to give you the words that you need to believe in order to be saved. An angel shows up and releases the apostles from prison, and it's this miracle, right? The angel tells the humans, to go and to proclaim the message. Now, these guys have been beaten. They've been jailed. They're getting the point that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, especially those around the, the Temple mound itself, are really against everything that they say about Jesus. How tempting would it be? You know, you know when you show up, angel things, great things, like cells of, of jail, uh, jail cells, the, the gates open up, the doors open up, and we're able to go free? Whenever we see the likes of you, we want to fall down in our face because you're a fearful being and you get people's attention. How, why don't you, it kind of save us the trouble of getting beaten up, why don't you go into the temple and to preach? Why does that angel, after doing the miracle, tell the humans to go and to speak rather than preach the gospel himself? Surely, that would be more powerful. The answer is that the power of God in the gospel is seen in humans. God's power is made manifest in human beings just like us. They see the transformational power. They see the revolutionary radical change that happens to human beings as they become the human beings that God always intended for them to be. The power of God in the gospel is seen in humans. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ to God. You know what happens when a human being becomes reconciled to God? The new is here, the old is gone. In those places where there were there, there were places that needed to be polished up a little bit, there were some sharp edges that, that needed to be made beautiful, there, there there were some traits and some tendencies and some habits and ways of speaking that, that were a little frustrating, annoying, sometimes hurtful, and sometimes a little bit laden with anger, those people begin to change through space and time. And you're never going to be the perfect person. That happens when you receive your resurrection body, the end of time. But people begin to see the power of God in you. Not that you've all of a sudden become this perfect individual, but they see a person in transformation day by day by day by day, becoming more and more like Christ. And there's something about the power of God being seen in human beings... That they are a new creature. That the old is gone. That there's something meaningful and tangible and visible about being seen in Christ and Christ in you that makes the message of reconciliation all that more possible and acceptable and believable. It's not about us making people behave in a certain way before they can belong and believe. It's about a group of people who understand that what it is God is doing is reclaiming the creation, that he is reglobalizing himself through his church and the people that recognize that they are not to, to, to be like God, but they are to be godly, that we are surrendering our right to rule our own lives and giving it back to the one that created us and in so doing, experiencing the blessing and, 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 and all of the, 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 the kindness that God will pour into our hearts and the love that we will experience, not only in our mind, but in our heart and in our soul, and not just in ourselves, but when we see it in each other. It somehow makes, when we speak the words, that this is what a new relationship with God entails and is like. This is what reconciliation does. That it becomes a beautiful thing to believe and to embrace and to be changed by. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front who want to bless you. They will pray for you. They will talk to you about how to, to become one with Christ through the gospel and how to how to, 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 to look at your life and to see that there are places. That, that need to be changed. But overall, it's about repentance, about turning your life towards God because you're confessing that He is Lord and being baptized for the remission of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and to live your life day by day being transformed by God's Spirit and by brothers and sisters and God's Word resounding in your heart and in your mind to look more like the Christ, the human being you were always intended to look like. Or there might be some, some other ways that we might minister to you this morning. Whatever they are, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God for His gospel. Oh, let Your light light up Your.